Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. So let's turn in the Word of God. Will you stand with me as we turn to Matthew 27, reading verses 45 through 56. We're continuing on with the death of Christ, the theme of this week. And we're repeating a few verses from last week to take us into the primary passage. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at this point, this is unique. It's, it actually quotes the words of Jesus. Calvin says it's as though he wants to engrave upon our minds the very spoken words of Christ, not in any other language, so that we hear them as he said them. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them were saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was God's son. And many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The word of the Lord. Join me in prayer for God's word. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you will apply it by my words to our hearts so that there may be conviction that the power of the spirit may be in our midst this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I don't think it's mistakable or... I could say it's unmistakable that when Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, comes to the point where he accomplishes the great sacrifice that is the sacrifice that was sacrificed before the foundations of the world, the entire purpose of his coming, when that moment arrives, when that Rome moment and it is, it has come to the earth, the, the fulcrum of of history, of certainly the, the, the point at which all of human history, upon which it revolves. And I think we have to understand from the Bible that this is also the fulcrum of eternal life, that the angels long to look into the things that Satan is rebelling against. So we see the centerpiece of, of time and eternity here, that when this time comes into being, so that Christ takes on the sins of the world and is made by the Father to be sin for us 
so that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God in him at this moment where the mechanism of this transfer of our sin to Christ and his righteousness to us is accomplished, where the work is done that makes that possible, there is an unmistakable sense of menace in the air. Now, menace is the threat of harm. Not yet accomplished, but the threat of it, the presence of danger. If you menace someone using it as a verb, you express a threat of danger, and you can do it either verbally or non-verbally. Many of you have been in situations that have been pregnant with menace, menacing situations, or places where there's a sense of menace. I remember as a kid going to downtown Chicago with my sister in the late 60s and going down to Belmont Harbor, which any of you ever been to Belmont Harbor? Uh, there's also was one in Montrose. I'm not sure if it was Belmont or Montrose Harbor. <clears throat> but there was a military installation there. And my sister said, well, you know what that is? Now, there's no signs of it today. So those of you who have been to Chicago since, the, I think, 68 or 69, it's gone. She said, that is a Nike missile. That's a Nike missile complex. Chicago and New York have missiles around them to shoot down the Soviet bombers when they come to deliver nuclear bombs. I'm not sure. I, I, as I recall, there were two places in one in New York and one in Chicago, the two biggest cities, there were two places where they actually were using anti-ballistic nuclear missiles. So right in, this is my memory, and I've tried to look it up and I'm not sure I'm right. My memory was that there were two of these, the, the whole Nike system was spread around these missile complexes. They were conventional. Two of them were nuclear that would go up and if the bombs were flying, they'd set off up in the air, a nuclear blast to wipe out the bombers as they came in. Well, I stood there as a kid. I mean, I was nine years old, and I looked at her eight years old. And, you know, that was back in the days when you actually did have fear of the Soviets sending their bombers, and you had, at times, I didn't really, but my older brother did, the, the, the practices in schoolrooms for, for a nuclear attack. What you do is just like a, a tornado drill. There was a nuclear missile drill or nuclear bomb drill. Some of you remember, I see Pete shaking his head. And so you'd go downtown Chicago and you'd see the soldiers right in the middle of the city in a park. <laughs> and, and you go, and, and there were the radar domes and everything. You go, Whoa. I can remember looking at and feeling a sense of menace. It was scary. Perhaps you've been at a big dam. The uh, the Hoover Dam, one of the dams on the Colorado system there, and you've stood on top of that dam and you've felt the water as it goes through the, tra the raceways, you know, goes down through the generators and things, and you feel the slate vibrations in this massive thousand-foot-high structure, you know. You can't, it's like being at the top of Niagara Falls. You can't be there without feeling a sense of menace. It's, it's in those places, it's kind of ill-defined. It's just the presence of intense power, you know? 
There is a, a more personal form of menace, and as we look at this, I think there's some elements of both, the personal and the, just the, the general sense, powerful, you know, vast power and then personal menace. Uh, I, I, many of you have felt menaced at points. Some of the most menacing moments in my life have not been with bears in the Boundary Waters, but with bus rides, especially Greyhound bus rides as a kid, when you'd get in and you'd sit next to a guy, and he was. And you'd be looking at this guy next to you, and you knew you were going the whole way to Toronto from Chicago next to this guy. And he, oh, I, I can remember some moments on bus rides where I was... I was saying, how am I going to protect my younger brother? This is the two of us on the bus. We'd ride it. And going, how am I going to protect? There's a sense of menace. It is worth noting that at the moment when the mockers and the, the priests and the, the scribes, the elders of the people, all those who blasphemed Christ before he was on the cross, while he was on the cross, ridiculing him, saying, if you're the son of God, come on down. Uh, you're so powerful. Show us your power. Right at the moment when they appear most victorious, when it seems like they're right and Jesus is a spent force, a dying man and nothing more, the tables turn. And the victors cower. And the blasphemers tremble. The killers cringe in fear. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And when that happens, three things take place that we should take note of because they reveal the menace in the midst of the mercy of Calvary. There is mercy because there is menace. There is mercy and mercy is always tied to menace. And you will not understand the mercy of Calvary if you do not grasp the menace of Calvary. Note that before these three things take place, several hours prior at noon on Good Friday, which is the sixth hour, midway through what we believe were the um, the, four to, the, the, the six to eight hours Christ spent on the cross from 8 a.m. to about 4 p.m., something like that. At noon, the sixth hour, the sun had been darkened and darkness had fallen on the land. Mark says it was a darkness that covered the whole land. Luke says the darkness came about because the sun was obscured. It was not a cloudy day. It was a deeper darkness. The sun was obscured, blocked, what we would call some form of eclipse. Yet with Calvin, I suspect, and, and Mark saying it covered the whole land seems to indicate it covered the land around Jerusalem and maybe all Judea, but Palestine, but it was not a worldwide eclipse. Though some have claimed a worldwide eclipse took place at that point. Calvin believes, and I'm with him, that this was a miraculous eclipse sent on this land, the land of the Jews, the land where they had said, let the blood of that man be on us and on our children to express the wrath of God, the menace of God's justice 
the things they were playing with, the danger implicit in them, as they are murdering his son. Now it was, of course, God's pleasure, we read, to crush his son, to put him to grief as a guilt offering. We are told, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. The father's pleasure was that the son die, that he be crushed, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And so in this statement, we have both the menace and the mercy joined. It was the father's pleasure to crush his son, to put him to grief if he would render himself by that grief and that crushing a guilt offering for you and me. But there was a cost to it, an infinite cost. There was a price to it, and that price was immense. It was sufficient to pay the price of, of all our sins and all those of all people throughout time who would turn to Jesus. It was an immense price. And so, though it was the Lord's pleasure to put him to death, to crush him, putting him to grief. At one and the same time, the Lord's displeasure rested on those who put him to death. The Lord was not pleased that this price was required. The Lord was not pleased with the men who did this deed. God was pleased to sacrifice his son at the hands of evil men as a righteous offering for the sin of mankind, and yet at the same time displeased with the evil men who did that wicked deed, blocking the sun was a menacing statement, a warning that was not heard, that was not heeded. Though the sun was darkened at noon, Jesus remained on the cross. No one thought to say, well, let's reconsider. Let's think back on this thing, maybe, maybe a second thought here. Perhaps we're not pleasing God by this thing we're doing. They were darkened in their understanding. They, they looked at Jesus, they looked at the sky, okay, well, let's go ahead. Let's continue. The darkness of the land mirrored the spiritual darkness in the hearts of the priests and the greater part of the Jewish nation on this day. They are blind to the double display of divine wrath that is before them. First, the wrath of God who had throughout the Old Testament foretold that there would be a sacrifice, one who would come, the Messiah, to pay the, to pay the price of sin, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins. They are blind to that great display of wrath at Christ. They don't see it. They don't see Christ dying for them. All of Scripture foretold it. Jesus preached it. John the Baptist said it. They don't see it. They can't see it. Second, they're blind as well to the more immediate darkness covering the land, which is an expression of wrath by God at the perpetrators of this deed, that he is angry. It was his pleasure to put Jesus to death, but he was not pleased with those who put him to death. And that includes you and me. You need to understand that you and I are implicit 
in this act. We are complicit. We are in it. We did it. It is our deed as well. It's not just these men. And so it may seem marvelous to us or strange, weird that these people would not understand what's going on before their eyes, what they're doing. But I think you understand this type of blindness. I know I do from my own experience. You know what it is to be so drunk on sin, don't you? Haven't you been so drunk on sin that you can't see light or darkness? I mean, all of us have been here. We know what it is, so drunk, so blinded by sin that we can't discriminate. All we see is sin. Sin, sin, sin. We can't see the wrath of God. We can't see the justice of God. We can't see the love of God. We just see what we want to see and all our hearts long for is sin. There isn't just the disappearance of the sun. There are three further (laughs) trumpet notes of the wrath of God. Three other menacing things that take place immediately after Christ breathes his last. Three hours before he breathes his last, the sun. Then when Christ has breathed his last, first, we're told the veil separating the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, the place where no one could go under pain of death. The veil, which no one was to look into, enter in any way except the priest in that once a year, is ripped open. The veil is torn from top to bottom. That holy place that had existed for well over a thousand years in the heart of Israel is now gone. Declared by God, ripping it from top to bottom, ended the purpose of the sacrificial system the whole temple system of Israel concluded because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has died and it's all over. Everything pointed to this and now there's absolutely no more purpose to it. None. And even the Jews recognize this today because they offer no more sacrifices. I mean, they don't worship Jesus but they offer no more sacrifices. It was done. God said, done. That's the first thing that happens. You may not see the the incredible weight of that portent, of that warning, but to any Jew, that would be as significant as any of the other things that take place on this day. Second, we're told the ground shakes. In the darkness, the earthquakes, rocks are split. Rocks are split, the ground trembles. It's a warning. It's a warning of wrath, it's a menace. It's a a statement of, of God's displeasure and his immense power, right? Third, in the most, in some respects, sensational sign of God's, of God's displeasure, And yet it's also a sign of something beyond that. Matthew tells us, and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now we're not told how this ended, but we know it was temporary. It was not a resurrection. It was, (laughs) get out your whistles if you want, it was a revivification, okay? Okay revivification 
Let's hear you say that. Revivification. It's a hard word to say. It is a coming back of, of breath for a time. But they, we know, go back to the grave. They return to Sheol. But imagine the sight. Darkness. Ground trembling. Temple veil ripped. And people arising. Have, how many of you have been to Jerusalem? A few of you. You know how prominent the cemeteries are in the valleys and around Jerusalem, right? Imagine standing there on the hill watching Jesus die and seeing cemeteries, the rocks being torn open, people coming out. The graves were usually in the rocks, right? The people coming out and walking and entering the city. Imagine the menace. But it's not a new thing for there to be menace in the presence of God. This isn't a new thing to the children of Israel. They of all people, they above all people understand that when you come close to God, you come near to danger. That's why the veil held back God's presence from the people. And the priest went in there once a year with bells on to warn not to go in there improperly and as a warning. They knew that it was dangerous to come near God. There was a time when mankind walked with God in confidence, in innocence. Adam did so, but when Adam sinned, immediately God went from being a friend he walked with in the cool of day to being a power that he feared and he hid in the bushes from him. When he sinned, God became a menace. He knew it implicitly. He understood it. Isaiah sensed that menace in the year that King Uzziah died when he saw the Lord high, sitting on a throne, lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim above him, calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Foundations of the thresholds of the temple that he saw on the throne shook the voice of him who called out while the house of God was filling with smoke. And then I said, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord. He says, I'm done. Remember Manoah and his wife, the parents of Gideon, The angel of the Lord came and then ascended in the sacrifice up into heaven in the flames of the sacrifice. And they said, we're done. Manoah said, we're done. We've seen God, we're done. John, the beloved disciple, in the beginning of Revelation, he saw him who was and he fell at his feet. And he loved Jesus and knew Jesus. But when he saw Jesus in his heavenly splendor and power, he fell and worshiped him. Jesus raised him back up and said, come up with me. It is terrifying to come into the presence of God. There is a menace if you're a sinner. There should be a good fear even if you're safe because you know you remain a sinner. Not the terror, but the fear of Moses who at the burning bush went, whoa. The fear of Isaiah The fear of John the Baptist when he stood in the presence of Jesus saying, you should do this to me. 
I can't baptize you. Now the signs of wrath and of menace are so clear and so strong on this day and so unmistakable that we're told that a Roman centurion who is the non-commissioned officer, the heart and soul of the Roman phalanx and of the Roman legions, the ones who ran everything, the most skilled men in them, this hardened centurion who's governing the troops at this crucifixion, this execution, together with the soldiers serving under him as they oversee this crucifixion. And when Christ has died, they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening. They became very frightened. And they said, truly, this was God's son. It's ironic, the hardened centurion and the soldiers become very frightened. They fear these men who, who really understand menace. They carry swords, they go into battle, they execute. They understand menace. It's like being around a policeman. You go into certain situations, there's a time, maybe you can ask Andrew and Nathan to tell the story about when they were over at Secor Metro Park and Nathan blithely went towards a car and Andrew said, don't go near that car. You know, the, the policemen know things to avoid. They understand menace. These guys understand menace and they are very frightened. You think there was ever another Roman centurion in the history of the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire who had just put a man to death, who had just executed a criminal on a cross and then said, surely this was the Son of God. It's not a standard emotion at an execution. What does he fear? After Jesus is dead, they become very frightened and say, truly, this was sons, the God's son. What is there to fear? Isn't Jesus dead? What causes this conviction? And this hardened man, these hardened men, men who face hostile crowds with soldiers at their back, swords in their hands, men who know what it is to be ambushed, men who go to battle in the phalanx, these men of warfare and death, but they know the smell of danger and they know the signs of menace. And he fears and they fear that they have killed the son of God. Pilate feared that he was putting to death the son of God. The soldiers feared that they had put to death the son of God. But the Jews, the religious people, are blithely, stupidly, ignorantly confident. And this is the truth. You will find more fear of Christ and of God often in the world than you will find in the church because you and I have become inoculated to God because we've heard so much of his mercy. He's a nice God. He's a good God. He's a kind God. You have nothing to fear from God. They've heard it so many times for so many years that they've come to believe that there's no menace to God. 
Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and they said, truly this was God's son. They saw the earthquake, they saw the, the things that were happening, the things that were happening. That means they saw the tombs coming open and the bodies of saints rising and entering the city. They saw these things and they became very frightened. And they became convinced through the menacing nature of these acts, through the fear that these things caused, that Jesus had to be the Son of God. And they're afraid because they just killed him. So the centurion and the, the soldiers, they say, we just killed the Son of God. Surely this was the Son of God. Chief Reese go, <laughs> get off the cross. The men who understand menace say, we just killed the Son of God. And he says, what have I done? He's standing before the Son of God, and what he's saying is, what have I done? It is by the goodness and mercy of God that you come to fear your sin. The mercy of God is found in your understanding that God is a menace to sinners. That his justice demands the penalty of eternal death of sinners. If God has given you that understanding, the fear of your sin, then you understand something of God's mercy. Because like the centurion and like these other guys, they're people who are saying, this is God's son. They're dealing with the reality of what they've just done and who they've just killed. They're dealing with it like the criminal who looks at Jesus, he begins on the cross blaspheming, mocking Jesus with the other criminal. But by the end, he's looking at him and he's saying, will you remember me when you enter paradise? He's come to understand that there's a greater menace to him than the cross. And he dies a happy man because he's promised something beyond the cross from Jesus Christ. He sees the Son of God. He understands. He says to the other criminal, we're dying justly. This is right. But he dies a happy man because he escapes the greater judgment, which is the judgment that follows the judgment of the cross. Why did Jesus die? Because you put him there. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was despised. We walk through the world which despises Jesus and we don't esteem him. We don't speak for him. We're no different. People mock him and we go, oh, I wish they wouldn't do that. We don't esteem him. We don't hold him up. We don't praise him. We don't declare him before the world. We are ashamed of him so often. This is us. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he did not open his mouth. Now, at this moment, 
the same cloud of menace that was visible when Jesus died, but which has returned to normalcy and is invisibly surrounding us, but there. That cloud of menace is, is clinging especially strongly to some who are here. You are under the wrath of God. <laughs> the signs of that wrath are found in your life. You sin and sin, and you don't fear. You don't see the darkness. You fight with your spouse on the way to church bitterly, angrily. And then both of you come hypocritically into the house of God as though everything's fine. And you think as long as people don't see what we're doing, we're okay. Though you've been fighting like haters rather than lovers last night, this morning. You were drunk last night, some of you, or high, not on the spirit. But today you're a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young Christian in the house of God, or you were making out with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You were unfaithful to your wife. You spent the family's money. You gambled it away. You were unfaithful with your eyes. You turned to other women, and you looked at them even in the presence of your wife. Wives, you were an idolater on Instagram. You worship your own image and you worship the image of others who you see as lovely and not God. But today, for a moment, you're in the house of God proclaiming him, despite the fact that you're an idolater. You gossip, your life is filled with fruit of bitterness, some of you. Broken relationships surround you. There are people all over that you don't speak to. And these signs of menace surround you, but you are oblivious. You're oblivious to menace like the comforters of Job who thought they were speaking diligently for God when they were actually coming under the judgment of God so that at the end of Job, if Job does not pray for them, they die. They think they're speaking for God. You are as oblivious to the menace around you as the army of the king of Aram who got upset at Elisha because Elisha would tell the king of Israel whenever the king of Aram went out to attack him and let him know how to avoid the spot. So he sent his armies to the city of Dothan where Elisha lived. And they woke up. Elisha and his servant woke up in the morning. They look out. Elisha's servant sees an army, the Aramean army surrounding the city and he is terrified. Elisha prays and says to God, oh Lord, open my servant's eyes so that he may see. So the, the servant sees what the army of Aram cannot see. The, the Lord opens the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The army of the Arameans is surrounded by chariots and horses of fire. They are menaced from every side and yet they are oblivious. Herod Antipas committed adultery with, then married his brother's wife, Herodias. He thought John the Baptist, the guy, the prophet who kept condemning him about his adultery, he thought John the Baptist was his big problem in life rather than his sin. His biggest problem was this 
this Neanderthal-type guy who kept yelling at him and not getting with the program and understanding that he was important and that he, that he as a prophet was not as important as a king. He was blind to the menace of God, the king. The menace of God lay upon his head and he put to death the guy who was warning. He thought the problem was the warning. And that is so many in every age who think that their problem is the one who speaks to them for God and says, you're in trouble. No, I'm not in trouble. You're just a problem. You're my problem. Ahab to Elijah, you guy who afflicts Israel. The problem is the guy who says that God is not happy with you. How many of you have felt? I can't tell you how many times I've known people who departed from this church and they said, David, I don't like you. You act like I'm bad. <laughs> I could name people, people many of you know. They say, I don't like to be told I'm bad. I don't like to be warned. You're too hard on me. I'm glad that you are here. <laughs> Understand that there's a cost in staying in a church, and one of those costs is being challenged, and I'm very grateful for you. So who are those least likely to believe that the menace of God lies upon them today? The same people as in the day of Christ, those who are religious. Those who believe that their religion is there just to cover their behind. That's about all it means to them. And yet there is something we have to deal with as we close our look at this passage. And that is that despite the cloud of menace that surrounds these events, the great portents, signals of God's wrath that take place on this afternoon, all this happens, and yet from the point of view of the priests and the elders, the people who mocked and put Jesus to death, nothing actually happens because as they see it, the earthquake calms, the people return to their graves, the sun comes back out, the dead are there, a new veil gets manufactured and hung. The memory of the terror of this day recedes and no one dies. Imagine that. The Son of God has just been killed. The innocent, righteous Son of God who was deviously betrayed and murdered, mocked, blasphemed as he lay dying, and no one dies. How many times in the Bible do we see people blaspheme God or lie to the Holy Spirit or do something that would be against God and they die? Dathan and Abiram, who rebel against Moses and Aaron, die! Like that, bang! Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. They die, you know? It's all through the Bible. But here on this day, when the blasphemy is greatest, the darkness of human sin is darkest, no one dies. It looks like God's a paper tiger. They conclude, ah, well, uh, yeah, we really were right. He was just a mocker. He was powerless. They see the signs, they go away, and they they conclude, well, he really wasn't as like powerless. And how wrong it is to draw such a conclusion. 
Instead, when we look at Jesus on the cross, we and they should understand that the price of this blasphemy and this great sin is being paid by the one who dies. That the wrath of God is there and there is a death, but it's the death of Jesus Christ, the death that satisfies the wrath of God. There is a response by God to that sin. His son dies. And because of his death, James writes, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. God offers you his mercy in allowing you to look to Jesus and be saved. Your participation in these events, which cause the wrath of God, can be forgiven and wiped clean. If you turn to Jesus in faith and say, I must have you. It is, uh, there's no joy on earth like turning to Jesus and saying, forgive me, Jesus. There's no power on earth that equals the power that God pours into your life when you turn in faith to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. Ah, you need Jesus. Everyone in this scene needed Jesus. Very few actually admitted they needed him. Which side of this equation are you on? The needy side or the paper tiger side? Ah, God's a paper tiger. He's never going to do it. Are you looking to Jesus and saying, that's my deliverance? Or are you looking at Jesus and saying, okay, well, that's nice. Which side are you on? You understand the menace of God. You live in the presence of God with fear. Only then can you have the mercy of God. Judgment will be merciless to one who's shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. That's why no one dies this day. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God longs to be merciful to you in Jesus Christ. God sent his son so that in that son you may find mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you this morning for Jesus Christ, for his death, his resurrection, his glory. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we will look to him and find in him mercy, that we may understand our sin and turning to Jesus, find forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.